Hello, and welcome back to Brace. On today's episode, we're going to be introducing a new format. Today, Paul is going to be interviewing Vince Ciano, who is the author of the book, Always Forward. I donated my liver to a stranger and she set me free. The reason we're introducing this new podcast type is in order to help fulfill our mission. The mission at Brace is to give our generation and the next generation the tools that they need to live a more meaningful life. And when Tommy and I read this book, we were struck at how well Vince was able to do that. In this book, I learned about how he ran with bulls how he proposed to his future wife and the entire process of being a living organ donor and donating over 60% of his largest internal organ. So Vince, thank you very much for being on the podcast. And I want to start you off with a, a question from the first chapter. Who the heck's sure. idea was it for you to be running with bulls? It was mine. I had this roommate in grad school briefly, and he had this picture on the wall. And it was like an action shot of him darting with the bulls. It's kind of lived in my mind. I don't know if you ever see things that just kind of exist there for a long time. And I, I really, really, really wanted to do it. I love to travel, but I try to travel for experiences. So there's the world's largest tomato fight, Machu Picchu, climbing K2, all these different things that you want to see that part of the world, but you also want to experience a cultural phenomenon, if you will. And it lived there for a long time. And I think once I got to the point where I maybe had the means to do it, I threw it out to my friends and I was just shocked by how quickly we were able to cobble a trip together. And I think it took us a couple months and we were on our way. Wow. So it was your idea in, in the group chat or whatever, you just threw that out there and you got what, four or five of your buddies to end up going with you. Yeah, we're a little older than you. So I don't know about group chat, probably more like... <laughs> couple of beers, watching a Clemson football game. Everyone who went with me, one of the guys that went with me is probably my oldest childhood friend. I mean, grew up four, four doors down and just as fate would have it, our paths, we stayed parallel through a large portion of our lives. But I mean, yeah, these, these guys that I connected with at Clemson, we did this trip literally on the 4th of July. I think we flew out and made our way to Spain. I've also had a huge thing for Ernest Hemingway. At the time, I never thought I was going to write a book, but I kind of kept going down that path. And, you know, there's a Cafe Arunia with a statue of him, and I have pictures I'll show you later. But we wanted the full experience, man. You know, I wanted it all. I wanted to wear the garb. I wanted to feel the chaos. I wanted all of it. And uh, we got it all. And it's such a, a fun way to start a book, just to say. Like, I was pulled in right away. I'm a thrill seeker. Personally, I love roller coasters. I, I have motorcycles I've had since I was a teenager, stuff like that. First of all, you, you're a very vivid writer. I mean, it feels like I'm standing right next to you and I'm running right next to you when you're describing how that went. But what a great way to pull everybody in. And you said you didn't at that time think that you would ever write a book. When did you know that you were going to need to write this book? Okay. So we go through the whole liver donation and in the book, you hear me talk about being a metaphorical mountain climber. I, I don't know. I've heard other guys refer to this as, you know, if they're not moving forward, they feel like they're going backwards. I always need something, some goal. And uh, I got to the other side of this thing that I had done that was powerful. And for the first time, I thought that maybe I had something to say. I had this other idea for what the book would be. 
And without going too much detail, that just couldn't work. It required too many other parties. It was going to be a tandem book between the recipient and me. It wasn't really feasible, but at the time I was gung-ho about it. And as we realized that it wouldn't work, I just couldn't let it go. And so I guess it's been no three years now and we have a Amazon best-selling book, but by far the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Not even close. Well, it's interesting you say that because when reading the book, you reach a certain point after the donation when you're a little delirious and then the chapters shift and you get more into your backstory. We don't really hear anything about you before you're running with bulls up until that point in the story. And then you kind of pull the curtains back and show us a little bit more. And I really enjoyed that like interlude. And then you continue on with your life afterwards. And that was that was really cool for me. Because again, when, you, when you're talking about meaning, you go back and talk about some of the issues with meaning you had earlier in your life as well. And that was so much fun to hear about. And I know that was a, a challenging you know, time in your life for sure, but it also sounds like one of the times when you actually found meaning and found drive really well in your experience. And I have to say, I've only spent about a day and a half in Montana, but the entire time I was just gawking at the beauty. I mean, they call it the big sky state and they call it that for a very good reason. It's, it's an awesome place to be. That was just a fun way to format the book. And now that you say you had kind of something else in mind, I can see how, you know, you wrote half the book and you're like, well, I'm going to have to do this a little bit differently than I planned. And then you, you did the rest. Is that right? So a, a couple of things. So what I've always jokingly said that I've done or as you learn and, and reflect on yourself is I um, enthusiastically jump into things and reluctantly finish them. <laughs> and I think that we all, we all have a component of that. You know, man, wouldn't it be cool if, and then you're halfway in and you're like, oh man, you know, this is harder than I thought or whatever. And that's where the rubber meets the road and how you finish. And the reason I say all that is because this book started out as 84,000 words and it was slightly disorganized. And I'm a first time author. I hired and worked with Steve Eggleston, who's a great editor and partner and helped me through all of this. But, you know, you become conscious of your deficiencies and you hire coaches and bring people in to bring you through. And that's what we did. And one of the best piece of advice was, you know, to put it all down and then we'll create, you know, this diamond out of coal. We're going to figure it out. And so this is what happened. We toyed with other beginnings, but it just felt like it had to be the bulls. We didn't want to jump backwards and forwards too much but I needed to tell a story of a struggling young man trying to define who he is. And I always say when I speak, you need to create a foundation and then purpose and principles. And that's the order that you have. And I allude to the fact that I didn't have a very strong foundation. And so Montana, and I briefly touch on my time at the Citadel, and I allude to the fact of why I was kicked out and I had no foundation, right? Through these failures, you reflect and you build principles and purpose on top of this now solid foundation. So all that was put in there for a reason, but man, it was mad when we first did it. So. Gotcha. Well, it's great to hear that process because I think both Tommy and I have aspirations to write our own books at different times and understanding that it's a grind and it's a process and it's a humbling experience, right? Because you think you know how to write and then you have to go back and accept like, all right, there's these things I need to be doing a lot better and, and there's these adjustments I need to make. So, but I was definitely curious when, when that hit you. And so it was more of 
okay, I've, I've climbed this mountain and now being a published author, that's a mountain that I can set my sights on and, and really focus on climbing. That's right. And I felt like I had a really positive message. I think that there can be impact, right? And that's what you're trying to do is you're trying to create impact. And if you're fortunate, you can have impact and income. But really, my priority is impact. But look, my wife makes fun of me about my ability to use social media. And this is, you know, I've loved the podcasting thing. And I, I naturally gravitate towards speaking. So that's not an issue. But now I'm in the business of, of having a book. And that's a whole other component. But there's one other thing I'd love to tell you about. You know, I wrote a memoir, just the arrogance of writing a memoir at 36 has been brought to my attention, which I didn't think about. And I fully acknowledge, right? It's kind of backwards, like write the memoir first. And now I'm working on my second book on servant leadership. You know, maybe most people have this, you know, maybe like I, Bob Iger, for example, you know, his memoir just came out or so uh, there's, it's a little backwards. The second thing I'll tell you is I grossly underestimated the additional stress of writing a memoir. So if people don't like the book, they're not rejecting, you know, your story of Hogwarts that's made up, they're rejecting you. There's that and then how is this impact my daughter, my my wife, my parents? Because you want to tell a true raw story, but you also want to protect people that you love. So be careful of that when you get into it and I'll, you know, we can ha- I'll happily talk to you more about that offline, but um yeah, it's yeah. immensely personal, right? Like there's there's no yeah. gap there. You're you're kind of exposing your soul out for everyone to to have their opinion on. And that's something that, first of all, just takes a certain amount of bravery. You have to be willing to say, look, this is me. This is who I am. And if you can take it or leave it. But also, I mean, just to stroke your ego a little bit here, uh, <laughs> when you talk about uh, writing a memoir at 36, when you go through something that is so life-changing and life-threatening, right? I mean, there there is that chance that you die on the operating table when you're getting cut open and having a large internal organ cut in half and transplanted. Yes, it's low and the medical industry is amazing and all of these things, but it also kind of speaks to your own mortality. And so it's like, yeah, it, I want to tell this story now because you never know when, you know, you might get hit by a bus tomorrow. We we can't say the what's going to happen in the future. So I respect that a lot. And I think that it was a, a story that needed to be told, especially for, for people my age that may, I think there is a, a meaning crisis in the West right now specifically. And so I, I think you spoke to that really elegantly on your experience with it and then your path through it. And Tommy and I recently reviewed on this podcast a book called How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. Have you read that book? No, I'm aware of it, though. Conceptually, I, I think I also, you know, there's this subtle art of not giving up, you know, that mm-hmm. book. Yeah. Um, there's a subgenre that's coming alive there, and I think it's great. I think that you're seeing a, a generation from, I think at the beginning of the book, I talk about you know, being diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, trauma-induced anxiety, ADHD, and you're seeing that more and more and more. And I feel like people feel like they have less and less control, and that's what drives worrying. And I've heard someone say before, depression comes from looking in the past and anxiety comes from looking too far in the future. And so you can take all these things like stoicism and put it about being present. And the more that we can drive people in these generations to read and grab tools instead of coping mechanisms for these things, the better. I think we're going to be a healthier society, but yeah. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And what I was going to say about that book was I could just see you applying some of the principles that we talked about actively throughout your life. So one of the main ones that Tommy and I have have 
taken from it was the living in day tight compartments, right? Not worrying about yesterday, not worrying about tomorrow, but just doing what you're supposed to do today. And I think especially in the lead up to the surgery, right, you were living so fully in the moment in your travels to Philadelphia and enjoying all these nice restaurants and just having some romantic time with your girlfriend at the time. And all of that, I I think it was really admirable because I think it's a really easy thing for someone to be completely worrying about this surgery that's happening a week from now, completely focused on the anxiety around that. That was just something where I was like, wow, he's applying this so well. And and that was uh, really enjoyable. Well, Let me say one thing about that. So um, that's certainly isn't the case in my day to day reality. Right. We talk about trying to to practice these things. But and, you know, I'm going to try to do my best to not create spoilers for them. But when you find that purpose, something that real, it's very difficult to live outside the moment, but it's very rare to find it, if that makes sense. So. Once we got to that point, right, you know, I come back from Spain and I'm really deep in this introspective point where I realized that while it was great and I have an abundance of friendship and I had a tremendous experience, it was an escape from reality in a sense. And I needed to make deeper changes. And then a year later, after all these signs which come through in the book, I get the ability to do this. I would have paid Mel to donate my liver. Right. It was (laughs) I was looking for this thing that I could wrap my mind around and go, all right, I get a break from the angst of look, it's here, it's here. And now I never really worried about it not working. Not once. I don't know why. I know that's maybe slightly unnatural. I had a few questions about what the statistics say for recipients, but I never worried about it. I was so excited to do something that would give meaning to at least the next year and and further. So Um, I was going to ask, actually, what was the timeline from that conversation you had with Mel where you just walk in and say, yeah, no, I'm in. And then you walk back to your desk to being on the table. Well, um, you know, a lot of things leading up to that. But from that conversation to the cut day was probably January to May. My cut day was May 30th. It was picked that way because my then girlfriend was going to drop my future daughter off at camp and which is just crazy. Like who does that? But that's another whole sub story throughout this is look, I think that if we're honest, you know, I wanted to grow my family. I wanted to find someone that I had trust and connection with, but I had to be accountable to the fact that I kissed a lot of frogs. Right. And so on my second date with her, she tells me she has a child and, you know, I don't know that's something that that's a personal choice. I don't know something that I would have done before then I make a decision. She's a tremendous person. We ask questions, we talk through it and fast forward. So completely supportive of doing this. Not only that, she comes and takes care of me in Pittsburgh, makes fun of me for the fact that I think I can do this myself. And I really didn't think that I could go do this myself. It's like, I'll be right back. You know, (laughs) one of my favorite parts of the book was, was your story at the pirates game in the recovery. That is 100%. I probably undersold that story. Uh, (laughs) 100% was going to black the F out at a Pirates game. And they would have just thought I was passed out drunk. And I'm on no pills. Like, you know, I'm, I'm training for a marathon right now. No issue. But at the time, she was keeping track of, like, everything. I mean, she's like a walking pharmacy. You know what I mean? Like that, But that's what I mean. Calling this woman my girlfriend was a 
insult, you know, the nurses were telling me. So I planned our engagement, as you know, on the roof of the hospital and the extended stay in Pittsburgh. And um, it was pretty cool. Yeah. And just as another aside, uh, for me, that reading this book was really fun and funny because you were talking about your extended stay afterwards in the hotel. And I've been living out of the hotel for the last three weeks and I will be for another month because my house got yeah. destroyed by a burst pipe at the end of December. So oh, um, that just, you know, was was really uh, I could relate to you on that. Um, and yeah, you know, the the story of, of meeting your wife online, first of all, I think is helpful and inspiring for those of us who are still in the dating world and who are trying to leverage that technology because it's like one of the best ways to meet people these days. And yet it can be so frustrating and so feeling useless to try to get through all the noise on there. And one thing that struck out to me, stuck out to me, excuse me, when you were telling that story was just how you didn't feel like she was ever, and this was a unique thing to who is now your wife, you didn't feel like she was ever holding you back from anything, but was actually pushing you forward and helping you reach those goals and, and inspiring you to do better and be better. And that's something that I think everyone should recognize is what you're looking for. It doesn't matter who you are or what your goals are. You want someone that is pushing you towards those things. Yeah, it's funny. My daughter came home from school the other day and she said she had an assignment from her teacher and that she had to rank looks personality and trust in what you look and she's 13 i i wish someone had got me thinking this way then right i, I think i started thinking that way at 30 but um <laughs> i asked her what she did and, and like i thought about my rankings but it really is trust first it's got to be trust right there's no point in a relationship if there's no trust and then it becomes personality and the support structure is everything i mean i see a lot of couples maybe who feel like they have to compromise compromise is part of life but you have to compromise maybe who they are at their core what they're trying to accomplish and that's just tough and i'm lucky i mean look she was popping flashcards with me to help me pass my certified financial planners exam at dinner you know if i told her that i could walk upstairs with the most cockamimi crazy idea and she's going to back me but that is earned, right? You also have to look at yourself in the mirror and do you follow through? Do you execute? Are you well-intentioned? Is this good for your family? Again, I've said this before, but that, that's a big part of where the rubber meets the road is she trusts me, so then she supports me. And all of this, I had to learn these lessons. I wish I always wish I learned them earlier, but that's what types of stuff that I try to incorporate throughout the book so people can see. I don't say it outright, but we try and demonstrate it through my own life. Yeah, and I think that's, I won't say the argument, but when you talk about how most people reacted to you saying, hey, I'm going to donate my liver to a complete stranger versus how your wife reacted, that's something that I think I can relate to, where if, if my brother came to me and was like, hey, man, there's this person at work's, uh, you know, uncle that needs my liver, and I'm going to give it to him, I'd be like, bro, what are you doing? Like, you have a <laughs> life, you have kids, like, you can't be doing stuff like that. And I know it was where you were at in life where you said, I actually can do this. There isn't anything that's holding me back. You know, a two-week recovery time isn't going to take anything away from anyone else, right? Right. Um, and at the same time, just trying to have that conversation with your significant other and have them recognize that, yes, this is what's good for me. You, you identify that you do it selfishly early on. You say, I'm looking for this thing and I just found this thing that I can do. And that's yeah. so that's so key. And it's another thing from from that book of, you know, even if it's selfishly, 
go and serve others. And that gives you meaning in your life. So even if, you, yeah, if you're looking for meaning, right. identify who you can help and how and just go do it. If you really want to have a deep, like ethical debate about altruism, that's the counterpoint is that unless you're just a sociopath, in which case you won't do anything nice for someone. But if you you always get something out of it, right? There's that sense of fulfillment. And that's good. That's good. I think that's the world's balance in pushing people to care for one another and, you know, acts of service and love. So I think it's great. But there is a, a, a bit of a story about the psyche vow that I went through. And um, I will <laughs> tell you one. from that multiple times. I don't know if it's because they subconsciously reject altruism or they're looking for motive in life, but they hear that I donated my liver to my boss's daughter. Well, he wasn't my boss. And then when they think daughter, they think baby, child, because that also helps them identify with, yes, you should save a child, right? You know, not that it shouldn't have been Sally, but I just thought that was such an interesting inadvertent social experiment that took place where I was giving them information and they were hearing it a different way, right down to the psychologist or psychiatrist that I interviewed with. So um, that very was interesting. Another, that was another one of my favorite parts because I can relate with that so well. And and first of all, your book is written in typical vernacular, right? You're swearing throughout, you're, you're the really whole time. giving us... Yeah, it's it's you're telling us what you were thinking. So what when you're thinking what the f that's what's what's coming out onto the page. Right. Uh, and that was one of my favorites because I can totally get that like combative interaction with the the psychiatrist where she has her agenda and you're like, what's this agenda? Like this is stupid. what a mistake. What a mistake though. <laughs> I I was I should have just rubber stamped that thing. And I have to say, UPMC, my surgeon unbelievable. And I have a story about that that I'll tell you later, but Dr. Humar was unbelievable. They took amazing care of me, but it's also, you know, hospitals are assembly lines, so they have yeah. to get you through a certain amount of things. And when you're in the ancillary care part and you're the recipient, it's just different. And I know that now, but in the way I write the book is I want to explain what I was thinking at the time. Man, I should have just been quiet and just rubber stamp that meeting and move on. And I caused so much grief. I made it so much harder than it had to be. You added a, a good bit of stress to yourself for a couple mm -hmm. of weeks there before you got that, you know, got the override, right? The veto um, power of that psychiatrist. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I've, I've only had one semi-major surgery in my life. I had a, a heart ablation when I was 17 years old. I mean, the recovery was like two days or whatnot. But even in that, I could kind of get a sense of the sometimes the disconnect between the multiple levels of personnel that you're going through, right? So for yeah. you, you had these interactions with the doctors where you're having the same thing over and over and over. And my favorite oh was my no, no one would answer the one question that you had. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm talking with UPMC and I hope that they, they want to, we want to do something jointly to get this book out because I really would like to continue to, I'm not, you know, I'm not here to obviously advocate for living organ donation, but I am here to advocate for living a life of purpose and to share those stories. I do think most people should be an organ donor post-mortem unless there's religious views to prohibit that because it drastically reduced the risk of Sally's surgery. They were going to harvest her own and rewire her own arteries and veins. And as a result of someone who was 
who had just passed away, they didn't have to do that. Now, you know, I'm, I'm not in the medical field, but a drastic portion of your blood passes through your liver in yeah. just one minute. So it's basically rewiring your vascular system. So I, I've seen the impact firsthand. I've seen what we're, we're able to do with modern science now and organ transplantation, and it's pretty freaking cool. So that is something that I'm trying to work with UPMC on. I don't know if they're going to like the candor in which I tell this story, but they have it in their hand and they're currently considering it. So I'll understand either way, but Spe they did a tremendous candor, job for, yeah. Sorry, speaking of your, your candor, are you still working for Merrill? Uh, <laughs> I am. And a lot of, um, look, I think I say in the book, I mean, I didn't have to think about this. I got to make a decision and Bank of America had my back for, you know, Bank of America owns Merrill Lynch and they have, you know, a huge and incredible benefit structure uh, as they should for an organization their size. And uh, yeah, I think as much of my struggle with Merrill was my own internal struggle with a lot of the choices that I've made that, you know, I look at in my 20s, I thought I just wanted to make six figures, right? And then you go chase this corporate gig. And a lot of times I was rowing against who I am as a man, which is probably more of an entrepreneur and the guy who goes to the fork in the road and drives straight. And um, as much as I wanted to break out of that, I was also a product of, I kind of created my own tough circumstances there. But there are a couple things I say about Merrill that, you know, I, I want to be honest, right? That is awesome. And I think a lot of people have been in those situations where they feel like they're being given the opportunity to be praised when maybe the praise isn't genuine or something like that. And you just kind of have to smile and wave and get through the the situation because this is your employer, or this is your organization, or this is whatever it is. And so just just kind of speaking the truth to that, I was impressed throughout the book how candid you were in pretty much every area of your life. And, and you, it didn't seem like, and I'm sure there are things where you're protecting other people, but when it came to what you were feeling, you laid everything out there. And that's something that, yeah, like I said, just takes a lot of courage. And I think it's easy to just sugarcoat the one thing that maybe you didn't feel all that good about, or you didn't want to offend this person. And it didn't seem like you did any of that. So props to you on that. Thanks. And look, you know, I, jokingly, though, my wife had my now wife had never been in New York City, and I told her I would take her one day. And then this award popped up, and I was like, "Well, that was that was convenient. Yeah, that's great." <laughs> and we get there, and we had a tremendous time. And you know, we got to see One World Financial Center, and it's a great award. And most of it was great. The core principle of what I was trying to accomplish in that moment was one: how probably unhealthy and uncomfortable I am with compliments and praise, right? Because especially around this, because I knew why I did it. And it was much for me as it was for anything else, right? I mean, I know the books that you guys read. I know the standard that you're trying to create for yourself. And I wanted to do this because it was the right thing to do and I could. Then that night when we get in that situation, you know, there was just some stuff that kind of made it feel a little nasty. But that's got nothing to do with Merrill Lynch. They're a tremendous company and they do a great job. It's just where I happen to work. These two or three people could have been working for any company. You know, I, I hope that that's how um, most people read it. But I've had a great ride at the company I work with. They've treated me incredibly well. And I'm very, very, very fortunate to have had the, the success I've had. So, but you're right. We, you have to tell the truth. It, it, you can tell when you read these books. And um, it also gave the opportunity to show how my wife interacted with me in those situations, right? She kind of told me, look, you, 
you need to be comfortable with this. They're just trying to show she helped me rationalize and understand what was going on in maybe a healthier way in that moment. That's awesome. And how just I'm curious as again, someone who is working professionally, but also doing a podcast and, and working on some other projects, how has having that job focusing on your family and now trying to do the business of writing, publishing and promoting a book? How has that balance been for your life? Well, you know, I, I have a baby girl on the way. So for right now, everything I'm, everything wow. I'm going to say is going to be for right now, but she could be here in the next week or by the end of this sentence, right? I don't know. Oh so, um, but I've always been a 4 a.m., 5 a.m. guy. I've always been a work really hard for what you want. And the only thing that really changed, I think, along the way is that maybe I started to realize that the things that I wanted, I couldn't get at my day job, but I, you want to build, you want to earn it, right? It's not, you don't want to be a victim. You don't want to be any of those things. So I spent a lot of time mornings. We're doing this on a Saturday, right? Um, and evenings working to achieve my goals. And I think that it's not that bad as long as you have discipline and it's discipline and consistency, right? That's what discipline is. It's not doing it once. It's doing it over and over and over. So much of what I learned over my career in the corporate world translates to this. You just start to, I call it, you know, you start to start, you're climbing without a rope, you know, that's really it. You're still climbing. Yeah, totally. Okay. Um, Vince, I have a, a wrap up that I want to have, but really I'd love if you, if you have anything to tell us what you would tell a 20 year old that is living their life, but has a gap, has a void, and and really is struggling with meaning, what would be the biggest thing that you would want them to take away to start living a more meaningful life? Yeah, I'll do that. I'll give a little shameless pitch. But on the back of the book, it talks about, I think it's Joseph Campbell, we must be willing to let go of the life we have planned so as to have the life that's waiting for us. Set your goals, charge towards them, but accept the fact that you're going to trip and that's when the resiliency part has to kick in. I mean, literally learning to climb that mountain, put one foot in front of the other in Montana, it unlocks something in my mind. And then, you you know, you go to the Citadel and you, you get kicked out there and the way you react to that is slightly better. And then you go, to, you know, so your life is going to be a series of these events. Embrace them. The unknown is a great thing. And that's where the title came from and always forward. Looking backwards is easy. It's always nice. Hindsight's always 2020, but that's boring. Charge forward, embrace the fact that you don't know and trust yourself to overcome whatever's in front of you. And uh, buy the book. It's on Amazon. Awesome. Well, one thing that Tommy and I usually do, and this is a little cheeky, but uh, we we rate our, the books. We give it a, okay. a out of ten. So I right I in gotta, front of the author, huh? <laughs> I, I got to do it right. So this okay. is the first ten that Paul is rubber stamping. Always forward. Okay. I donated my liver to a stranger, and she set me free. The reason it's a ten, I gotta I gotta back up that claim. Uh, it's incredibly consumable. It's what 165 pages, something like that. Yep. It's a full story and it has multiple stories going underneath it. Like you said, the romance, we get the background of your life, the relationships with your parents, all of these things are, are throughout the book subplots. And like I said, it's an incredibly consumable book. And I think it really does speak to the gap that my generation specifically and the one coming up behind us are dealing with all this technology, the access to all the information in the world, the access, you know, not having 
a struggle to live, right? We have everything provided for us that we could to survive. And so we're saying, what is this life about? What are we doing here? Uh, and you you lay that out and you show us the path forward. So I think this is a must read for absolutely all of our listeners. Um, and to that end, actually, we're also doing something for the first time today. If you're listening to this, please screenshot the episode and grab the link to it. Put that on social media and tag uh, Brace.22, tag Tommy or myself if you follow them, tag Vince, we'll, we'll put his social. And we're doing our first ever book giveaway. So if you tag us on there, you will be entered to win within the first week of the podcast coming out, you can feel free to put that up there. And then if you win, we will DM you, get your information and send it. And if you've already read the book, great, do it anyways. And we'll send it to one of your friends that you think would, would benefit from this message. One or two last things. Can you go ahead and tell us where we can find you on social media events? Yeah. Always forward 21, always forward 21. And then, you know, I have, I have LinkedIn, but I've tried to keep it simple and just put everything on always forward 21. And that's uh, the other thing, right? correct. The other thing I, I want to say, Paul is, you know, I've done a few of these now. I know you guys are just getting started. I totally love the concept, but you guys are pros, man. I mean, I, I've been really impressed right down to, to the cadence in which you speak and your attention to detail. I'm very excited to see where this goes for you guys. This was an unbelievable experience. Well, thank you, Vince. We appreciate that a lot. And we're looking forward to that next book about servant leadership. And we'll have you back on to, to talk about that as well after we've given it a read. So hopefully you can give us the, the second 10 out of 10 that we can have on here. That'll be a lot of fun. And lastly, this was a, a direct from Tommy. So take this with whatever grain of salt. But he wanted me to make sure that I am uh, shouting out Joe Rogan and that he needs to reach out and have Vince on to talk about the book as well and talk about your experiences. So uh, <laughs> Uh, it might be a little bit of a step up from from our podcast in terms terms of viewership and the opportunity to push you up Amazon even further, but I'm supportive, man. It's just a camera and a mic, buddy. Everything else is done. It's all the same. All right, good stuff. Well, uh, thank you for listening, and we appreciate it. Have a great day. Appreciate you, Paul. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, whenever you're listening to this Brace podcast. We ask you to follow us on Instagram at brace.22. Paul's Twitter is at Paul from Brace. And be sure to email us at brace22 at protonmail.com. Please leave us a five-star review wherever you are listening and send to a friend if you found value in this discussion. Thanks. We appreciate it.